welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, The Randy Rhodes Show, The Sam Cedar Show, and Ring of Fire. A showdown is looming on Capitol Hill over the Bush administration's firing of eight U.S. attorneys. On Tuesday, President Bush rejected Democratic demands to question key White House aides under oath. The president said he would only authorize private testimony before select lawmakers and warned he would fight any subpoenas in court. Yet in this case, I recognize the importance of members of Congress having the importance of Congress have placed on understanding how and why this decision was made. So I'll allow relevant committee members on a bipartisan basis to interview key members of my staff to ascertain relevant facts. In addition to this offer, we will also release all White House documents and emails involving direct communications with the Justice Department or any other outside person including members of Congress and their staff related to this issue. These extraordinary steps offered today to the majority in Congress demonstrate a reasonable solution to the issue. However, we will not go along with a partisan fishing expedition aimed at honorable public servants. The initial response by Democrats unfortunately shows some appear more interested in scoring political points than in learning the facts. It will be regrettable if they choose to head down the partisan road of issuing subpoenas and demanding show trials when I have agreed to make key White House officials and documents available. I proposed a reasonable way to avoid an impasse. I hope they don't choose confrontation. I will oppose any attempts to subpoena White House officials. President Bush went on to defend Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, saying, quote, he's got support with me. Gonzalez will testify before Congress is expected. Democrats immediately rejected the president's refusal to allow key aides appear under oath and vowed subpoenas could come as early as today. Potential witnesses include chief political strategist Karl Rove, former presidential counsel Harriet Myers, and deputy White House counsel William Kelly. Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, made the subpoena warning Sunday on ABC's This Week. Mr. Rove, uh, you know, I don't know how he'll react when he gets the subpoena, but I intend to subpoena them. I do not believe in this. We'll have a private briefing for you. We'll tell you everything. So you want public testimony at hearings? I want testimony under oath. I am sick and tired of getting half-truths on this. Senator Patrick Leahy speaking Sunday. Meanwhile, the Senate overwhelmingly approved a measure to repeal the Patriot Act provision that allowed Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez to replace federal prosecutors without Senate confirmation. The final vote was 95 to 2. And now you've heard of the U.S. attorney scandal. But do you know the players? Tonight's segment is entitled, Get to Know Your Current Government Scandal, or CSI DOJ. <laughs> Up on the hill was a Senate chairman, Leahy, old Leahy, Patrick Leahy-ho. He told Alberto it wasn't fair when eight U.S. attorneys had to go. Harriet Myers, a White House female, told Leahy, oldie, Leahy, oldie, Leahy, ho. 
she sent Alberto a bunch of emails. Uh-oh, 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 oh Oh, he won't delay. Oh, he delay. Someone's gonna have to pay. Then Carl Rove, who was not too friendly, delay, oh, delay, oh, delay. Sure miss the days when Fris and Wendy, they he lay he lay he ran the show. Unhappy are they, lady ho, lady he ho. But here's really the ironic part. What do you call a dismissed attorneys? That is what some people call a start. Lay he lay. Snow came out and said, oh, it was Harriet Myers. Harriet Harry Myers suggested firing all 93 prosecutors at the beginning of Bush's second term to make sure, not so much because they were doing a bad job, just because we can replace them. It turns out we don't even need competent people, was their way of thinking. We'll just hire a bunch of political hacks. They'll do everything we want. They'll investigate the Democrats. We'll win every election forever. It'll be awesome. Yeah, Harriet Myers, by the way, at that time had not even become a White House counsel yet. Because Alberto Gonzalez had that job, and he was going to go ahead and become attorney general. This is in the transition in, in uh, 2004 as they're getting into the second term. At that point, Harriet Myers was like, you know, mop lady. She was the secretary of the secretary, okay? And I, when we say secretary, we don't mean like secretary of state. We mean like actual secretary, okay? She was, what was she, staff secretary or something? But like, Harriet, we, I, I, like, you know what would be great here would be like a couple of corned beef sandwiches and some hot coffee. Yeah, that's what Harriet Myers was. He nominated her to the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Jesus. Man. Man, they have no compunction about anything. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so, you know, they after they nominated her to the Supreme Court and that didn't work out, and this scandal is, you know, I don't know if it had anything to do with this scandal or not, but just a couple of weeks ago, they're like, Harriet, pat her on the ass. Nice working with you. Your work here is done. You're done. Okay. So, <laughs> we, got, we got somebody else. Turns out they'll deliver the sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, but she, they wanted her in the Supreme Court, but she's not good enough to continue as White House counsel. Okay, just think about that for a second. So anyway, so she, Tony Stone, at the beginning of the scandal, says, well, it wasn't us. One me, one Bush, one Rove, one Gonzalez. It was all, let's see, who left, who left, who's no longer here? Harriet Myers. Okay, she got the sandwiches, and she had the idea to fire all these people. Okay, as she was bringing the corned beef in, she said, "Oh, by the way, we well, want to fire ninety-three prosecutors. I know I'm the secretary to the secretary, but you want to fire all ninety-three prosecutors." <laughs> well, so let me just say something about it because I I love that, that that like they're suggesting it was all her idea. If it was then, as if it was no, it was a terrible idea. It was ridiculous. Well, then why didn't it stop there? Mm-hmm. Why didn't she say, "Let's fire all ninety-three prosecutors"? And they were like, "Harriet, please, more mustard." <laughs> You know, like, like that's a ridiculous idea. I mean, but no, they clearly took it seriously, which it doesn't excuse her for being the person to bring it up, even though it's obvious that she wasn't. I ordered a pastrami, Reuben, not a corned beef, Reuben. But you know what? Your idea on the 93 prosecutors all being fired, that's interesting. Let's think, let's think that one over. So then we found out, of course, it wasn't Harriet Meyer's idea. It was Carl Rove's idea. Now that we found that out, and he was involved right from the beginning, and he's talking to Kyle Sampson, and he's got his guy. Kyle Sampson was uh, Alberto Gonzalez's chief of staff. Right. So, uh, and at the time, he's uh, at the Justice Department. Anyway, so now that that comes out, and Tony still has to do the backpedal, 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 back
right? Get this. I love this. Is a, <laughs> this is a classic backpedal quote. At this juncture, this is Tony Snow in response to all of this. At this juncture, people have hazy memories. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, really? Do they? <laughs> at this juncture, at this juncture, people have hazy memories. <laughs> Come on, dude. Go work with me. Come. I mean, it's been a couple of days. All get in a tent. Figure this thing out. Come up with a couple of excuses. The best you got is at this point, at this juncture, people have hazy memories. Yeah, at the, they, ju- at the juncture where they figure stuff out about you, you have hazy memories. <laughs> so, uh, I remember, by the way, Scooter Libby had hazy memories. You remember what happened to Scooter Libby? It was good on <laughs> one count. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I saw that on Fox News. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, CBS News continues. As the President Bush himself might have suggested the firings, Snow said, Tony Snow said, get a load of this book. This is incredibly important. Anything's possible, but I don't think so. Okay, you know what that means? Yeah. yeah. President Bush ordered it. Press the button, press the button. President Bush ordered it. and Harriet Myers, what do they know? Well, you know, we don't know what they know, but it, it does appear that some of the direction on firing these people was coming from the White House, that it wasn't Alberto Gonzalez who was making the decisions. Now, the question is, were Rove and Myers saying things among themselves, like, uh, we don't like the fact that uh, that Inglesias wouldn't bring that lawsuit before uh, the November elections, the one that, remember, Senator Domenici called and, and asked, are you going to bring this uh, are you going to bring this indictment before November, which is when there was a very closely contested congressional race in New Mexico. So the question is, was that part of their thinking? Were they annoyed at John McKay because he didn't uh, investigate a very close governor's race that the Democrat won after two recounts? So we want to know what was the thinking behind this. They And what we know so far is that what they've said about what they did is not true. They've said these people were fired for performance reasons. But these U.S. attorneys who were fired have excellent performance records. Their, their performance evaluations from the Department of Justice show that. So there is a missing explanation, and that's what we could learn if we got to talk to them. What could happen if Bush fights these subpoenas? Talk about the precedent in history. Sure. Um, it, it could set up a political clash, but we've been there before. Remember, uh, back during Watergate, when, uh, when, when Nixon's White House tapes were subpoenaed, he also claimed executive privilege. Presidents don't like to give up potentially inculpatory material. But that went to court. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Nixon unanimously. They said that there was no executive privilege. He had to hand over the tapes. I think that's a very strong precedent legally for this situation. What if Congress finds the president in contempt? Well, they could well do that. But then the question would become, 
how do they enforce that? And ironically, that then becomes a federal legal matter, and it would be referred to the U.S. attorney for uh, the District of Columbia, who's someone who reports to Alberto Gonzalez and could be fired uh, uh, by him if, if he's too aggressive. Again, we were down that road in Watergate with the Saturday Night Massacre. Ultimately, Alberto Gonzalez... Explain the Saturday Night Massacre. Sure. The Saturday Night Massacre uh, was during Watergate uh, um, when when the... Um, when, when, when uh, the Watergate prosecutors were getting too aggressive, um, they, they just began firing e- in sequence each, uh, each prosecutor. And, that, and that, the problem with that, of course, is that... Who refused to fire the special prosecutor. Re- re- right, right, exactly. And, um, and the problem, of course, is that ultimately prosecution is a, an executive branch uh, responsibility. So you have that problem that ultimately the president, the attorney general, can stop the investigation of themselves, and that that could be an issue here. Does this stop with Alberto Gonzalez? Um, Murray Wass wrote a piece um, for National Journal that said shortly before Alberto Gonzalez advised President Bush last year on whether to shut down a Justice Department inquiry regarding the administration's warrantless domestic eavesdropping program, Gonzalez learned his own conduct would likely be the focus of the investigation. Bush personally intervened to sideline the Justice Department probe in April 2006 by pay- taking the unusual step of denying investigators the security clearances necessary for their work. Did President Bush obstruct justice? Well, potentially. And that's, again, the same problem, that it's the Department of Justice investigating itself. It's someone that the president can uh, order off the case who has to do the investigating, which is why it's so important what's going on right now with Congress investigating, because you get a body that is not responsible to the president, that is independent, that is elected by its own constituencies, that has subpoena power. And it's why the very separation of powers that President Bush mentioned in his speech yesterday actually argue for for respecting the subpoena power and letting the checks and balances of the system work their, themselves out. What about um, these other investigations that were thwarted? Guam, uh, now Senator Menendez, talk about these. Sure. We have the eight U.S. attorneys that everyone's focusing on, but really a lot of other U.S. attorneys have either left office or perhaps remained in office because they did the wrong thing. But the two that you mentioned, uh, before the very closely contested New Jersey Senate race last year, uh, Menendez, the Democratic candidate, uh, was uh, suddenly there was an investigation announced by the Republican U.S. attorney in New Jersey of a very old land deal that everyone said when, when the investigation was leaked, it didn't look like there was anything there. It doesn't look like there's anything there. The timing of that, a couple months before the election, and, and remember, that was an investigation that immediately was used by, uh, by Mr. Kane, the Republican, in attack ads, looked very suspicious. The Guam situation, also suspicious. There we had a career prosecutor who decided he was going to investigate some perhaps shady dealings by Jack Abramoff, and the day after he issues a subpoena, he gets demoted and someone else is put in his place. These are the sort of things... Now, this was the case, Abramoff uh, representing the sweatshop owners in Saipan and Guam. That's right. It's, it's something that still has not been adequately investigated. Now, you have to figure if, if there are congressional hearings that involve Rove and Harriet Myers and other people, these situations may also be probed. It might be one reason why President Bush has taken such a hard line. In the op-ed piece that David Iglesias wrote today in the New York Times, the fired U.S. attorney from New Mexico, he said in order to settle the issue, he wants a written retraction by the Justice Department setting the record straight about his performance. 
Yes. Well, one thing that the Justice Department did wrong in this uh, situation is if, in fact, these people were fired for political reasons, which it seems that they were, they immediately said, no, everyone was fired for performance-based reasons. We fired everyone because they were bad at their job. Well, that annoyed a lot of them. And as as Mr. Inglesi said, he feels he's entitled to uh, an apology. But it may also have been a strategic mistake because it really angered these hardworking, you know, long-serving prosecutors to say, oh, we fired you because you did a bad job. ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Continues, folks. Yesterday, the Democrats pulled out their most underhanded weapon yet, Republicans. An exclusive interview with Maverick Republican Chuck Hagel. Maverick? Hagel stole that mantle from John McCain. Now McCain's going to have to steal a mantle from somebody else. Maybe seems kind of old mantle from Bob Dole? I don't know. Senator Hagel wasted no time in viciously mavericking the president. No president can dictate to this country. We have three equal branches of government. No president is bigger than the other two. Article one of the Constitution is not the presidency, it's the Congress. This this is not a monarchy. Of course it's not a monarchy. What an outrageous thing to say. The president should confiscate Hegel's lands and revoke his peerage. (laughs) Thank you, though. Of course... This is really about Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and the fired U.S. attorneys, even though Gonzalez already explained he was not involved in the affair. Like every CEO, I am ultimately accountable and responsible for what happens within the department. But that is, in essence, what I knew about the process. Was not involved in, in seeing any memos, was not involved in any discussions about what was going on. See, Gonzalez is as innocent as the CEO of a major corporation. <laughs> Like Enron, the company he used to represent. But the accusations keep flying because a few documents released on Friday imply that Attorney General Gonzalez was involved in the decisions just because he signed off on the plan. And now the Democratic Congress wants more answers. Well, too bad, Dems. Gonzalez has made his statement. If you want any more information, you're going to have to torture it out of him. Oh, right. You guys don't believe in torture. Don't want to get your hands dirty. You know who might be willing to do it for you? Alberto Gonzalez. (laughs) Oh, no. The one guy who could have helped you. (laughs) Moving on. They say an end can be a start. Feels like a barbarian still out. It's like a bad day that never ends. I feel the chaos around me. A thing I don't try to deny. I better learn to accept that. There are things in my life I can't control. They say love are nothing but a sore. I don't even know what love is. Too many tears I've had to fall. Don't you know I'm so tired of it all? I have no terror, these spells. Finding out the 
boy Gonzalez, who doesn't know how incompetent he is, decided that he could handle an interview. Yeah, he thought, you know what, I will sit down with Pete Williams. He's just, you know, he's, he's easy. He's easy breezy Pete, and I can do this. Pete Williams, like, asked him one question. Like, did you know why these people were fired, and why didn't you just say, I know why they were fired, and I don't have to tell you anything. Because that's what I get to do. I can do whatever I want. President can fire whoever he wants. All true. What, what the hell did you go to Congress and tell them a lie for under oath causing this whole thing? Why didn't you just go to Congress and go, we fired nine people because we wanted to put political cronies into those positions. There's nothing illegal about that. Here's his answer. I have grown up, I grew up with nothing but my integrity, and someday when I leave this office, I'm confident that I will leave with my integrity. What? You should just stand up and say, all my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy, I had to fight my uncles, I had to fight my brothers. A girl child ain't safe in a family of men's. But I never thought I have to fight in my own house. Why didn't he just do that? Or I was born a poor black child with no rhythm. I mean, what the hell is that kind of an? Well, you know, I've grown up with nothing but my integrity. Excuse me. You grew up willing to cheat to get ahead. That's what you're telling me here. He actually sat there and gave Pete Williams three different answers to the same question. He gave him an answer that said. Well, I was not involved in the deliberations during the process as to who was going to get fired. Then later in the interview, just like a, a minute, not even like 30 seconds after, he says to Pete Williams, I know why I wanted them fired. I'm sorry. You just said you didn't know who was getting fired because you had nothing to do with who was getting fired. But five seconds later, he says, I know why I had them fired. And then five seconds later, he says, I didn't ask that they'd be fired. This was something that a subordinate did. And, uh, you know, it was perfectly, you know, I'm just the attorney general. 
I don't need to know about the U.S. attorney. In, in literally a minute, he had three different answers to the same question. Here, play, uh, play cut one. Listen to this. I was not involved in the deliberations during the process as to who, or should, who should or should not be uh, asked to resign. If that, I, I depended on the people who knew about how these United States attorneys uh, were performing, uh, people within the department uh, who, who would have personal knowledge of, about these individuals, who would have, based upon their experience, uh, would know what, what would be the appropriate standards that a United States attorney should be asked to, to achieve. Given that, then, how can you be certain that none of these U.S. attorneys were put on that list for improper reasons? What I can say is this. I know the reasons why I asked these, these United States attorneys to leave. And it, what? It was not for improper reasons. It was not to interfere with a public corruption case. It was not for partisan reasons. What? I also, we also know that there's nothing in the documents that indicates that they were asked to leave for improper reasons. To put this question another way. Uh, if you didn't review their performance during this process, then how can you be certain that they were fired for performance reasons? I, I've, given the, I've given the answers to the question, Pete. I know, I know the reasons why I made the decision. First he says he wasn't involved in making the decision. I mean, that, that was unedited. That is just a straight, flat-out clip that happened in real time just the way he said it. We didn't edit the, that clip. for When we edit clips, we tell you it was edited for fun. This was... This was just exactly what he tells Pete Williams. He says, I was not involved in the deliberations process. Then he says, well, then how can you be sure that they were fired properly for the proper reason? Oh, I know why I asked them to leave. It was my decision. You know, I mean, I was involved in the deliberations. I and then later on in the interview, he's going to say, I wasn't involved in it. What? you right now man this white house is sitting on top of on top of a giant pile of crap they for six years they stored it up they stored it up they stored it up and they hid it away in 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 the deep crevices of the white house and the congress had no interest in looking into it now that congress has power and is able to look into it that stuff is seeping out it's seeping out of the white house i don't think they're going to be able to contain it I, i i've said this before I'm telling you, something's gonna, the dam is going to break at some point for this White House. 
I don't think it's a given that they're going to last the two years. I really don't. Because we know their level of arrogance. We know how corrupt they are. We know how much they lied. And if they did all that thinking they can get away with it, and now they can't get away with it, something could easily give. That's entirely true. Something could easily give. The question is, do they have enough little Dutch boys to put their fingers in the dam to run out the clock? Well, what's and here here's a and so this brings us to this issue of should the Democrats reach some sort of compromise with the White House on Karl Rove, Harriet Myers, et cetera, uh, coming in front of the White House aides, coming in front of Congress and testifying. Now, the White House has given an atrocious a comprom- quote unquote compromise offer, like their compromise offer on the Military Commissions Act. Bush said it was very fair. <laughs> no, it's in the words of Tony Snow, extraordinarily generous. Extraordinarily generous. He called it extraordinarily generous? Yes. And again, remember, he called the 3,000 documents unprecedented. Right. And by the way, he says, and if they issue the subpoenas, then the offer is withdrawn. Ooh, wow, <laughs> you're going to withdraw that. So what's the offer, right? I mean, I don't know if you've heard this in other places yet, but the offer is this, okay? Uh, no, you don't swear them in because if you swear them in, then they'll have to tell the truth. Otherwise, Fitzgerald will go after them, right? Don't swear them. No oath. No oath. No oath. No, don't swear them in. Okay. Number two, not in the public. Nobody can see it. It's got to be in, in the private. It's secret. Secret. It's got to be secret. But here's the kicker. Okay. You don't swear them in. It's secret. No transcript. What? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. You're kidding, right? He says, no, 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 no. This is the extraordinarily generous offer. It. And John Kyers, who's in the House, a, a, a Democrat, said, yeah, well, we could do that at a local pub. He's like, we can go to a local bar and be like, hey, Myers, what'd you say? He's like, what's the point of that? What's the point of having them come to Congress if there's no transcript, nobody can take notes, they're not sworn in, and it's done in secret? Then there's no point at all. It's the worst offer. But here's the thing. It says here in the New York Times uh, article about it, it says Democrats in Congress held out hope for a compromise. No, 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 no. No compromise. Not even close to a compromise. They get sworn in, and they do it in public, okay? No way you should comp. You would be nuts to compromise on this for two reasons. One, for the sake of justice. Uh, The only reason they don't want to get sworn in, obviously, is because they intend to lie, who, I mean, who insists on not getting sworn in and no transcript unless you're planning to lie? And every and this is point two. Everybody in America gets that. Yeah, it's that, not complicated. And so, for political reasons, yeah, there's you no, have n- no downside. No, there's the no. The more they did, won't let these guys come and testify, the more they're going to get killed. Well, I, I mean, obviously, I, I hope the Democrats don't compromise in in any way, unless. I mean, if the Republicans want to frame it as a compromise, that we've reached a compromise agreement and they're going to testify under oath. In and public. in public. In and public. there'll be a transcript. Yes. Yeah, yeah. then then okay, great, I'll take that compromise. Uh, or that uh, that we, you know, if the compromise is, yeah, you can wait 10 days. I don't know, whatever. But you're coming in and you're going to do it under oath. Um, you know, Pat Leahy, uh, two days ago, was really unequivocal. He was like, no, no deal. They're going to testify publicly and they're going to testify under oath. Mm-hmm. So now people like Trent Lott, the Republicans, since they're desperate, they're like, huh, this is the quote. I think the Democrats are overplaying their hand. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Oh, do you? Okay. Wow. That's a powerful talking point there. Trent. Uh, also, you know, yesterday we, we aired a bunch of the president's uh, press conference on the show yesterday. You weren't here, Jen, because it was your birthday. Uh- <laughs> By the way, I was so scared. 
that I was going to miss like Gonzalez going down. Right. And then I wouldn't get to play, you know. We got him. We got him. I was like, please, please, please don't let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I care uh, about this job. But, uh, uh, you know, and President yesterday in that press conference uh, uh, kept talking about how, hey, you know, we can't have him testify under oath because the president needs uh, impartial advice. You know, he needs to know that people are going to be honest with him. Right. Mm-hmm. It was a rambling, silly, nonsensical press conference. Uh, but their argument is, and Tony Snow makes it when he talks to the press and the president made it during that press conference on uh, Tuesday. They say, no, no, we're, I've still we've got this good plan. I don't see what the problem is. They can still go up there uh, and be interviewed and tell people what happened, just not under oath. Well, how does that not infringe on executive privilege? I mean, there's no consistency of the argument. If your argument is, no, I can't have people going up and talking to Congress, well, then you can't have them going up and talking to Congress, whether they're under oath or not. Hold on. Everybody stop the presses. Ben Meng was has come up with a brilliant point. Basically, they're saying it infringes on executive privilege if you don't allow them to lie. Right. Okay. But if you know, if you allow them to talk to you about exactly what you want them to talk to you about, that's fine. That doesn't, uh, you know, cross executive privilege. But if you swear them in, then all of a sudden executive yeah. privilege. He's, he's saying, I'm comfortable with them going up there talking to you, but they got to be able to lie. That, that's the only possible way to interpret that distinction. If they really believe about this executive privilege nonsense in this case, then they have to say, then their deal should be, you can't talk to them. You can't talk to them at all. We'll send you notes of what we deem to be acceptable, and we'll give you those. That's it. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Are we on the countdown now for Gonzalez or what? Well, certainly after yesterday's uh, Sunday talk shows. You know, uh, my bet was for March 12, 2008. I was taking, you know, a bit of an outlier bet. <laughs> Gonzo is Gonzo, and uh, so isn't Bill Share is the chance to win that bet, I got to guess. <laughs> I mean, from an objective standpoint, hearing the Republican senators on the Sunday shows yesterday, you, you got to think. You would think that Gonzalez's resignation would be quite forthcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, because they essentially, they didn't outright call for his resignation, but they set up negative things to make it clear, hey, we're not sticking up for this guy. We're not sticking our necks out to, to, to defend a guy who has clearly been contradicting himself and misleading the public. And I think their hope is that they'll either goad W to pull the rug out from under him, or thinking that W is not going to um, take out his his very close ally, who knows where a whole lot of bodies are buried. <laughs> yeah, we talk about loyalty with the president, and that may not be just a metaphor. <laughs> it may not. 
But, you know, it is not a small thing to fire a guy who has been by your side for, for years, particularly if, you, if you're involved in a lot of untoward activities. So he does not want to let this guy go, particularly if he's going to be ticked off about it. But what, they may, what the Republican senators may be trying to pull off is to get Gonzalez to jump on his own accord, to make him think this is good for my friend, you know, my mentor, George Bush, if I walk out on my own by building up that kind of pressure. So we'll, I will see that happens. You know, I placed my bet thinking that George Bush was not going to whack one of his own, particularly someone who was that close to him, who knows where that much about a, a lot of shady activities are concerned. But uh, it's certainly not looking good for Gonzalez after yesterday. And uh, wh- now give me your sense of how the Democrats are, uh, are basically almost leapfrogging Gonzalez at this point, because it's clear uh, from the gap that exists in the, the record, the document dump that the uh, White House uh, uh, sent out, I guess, a week ago now, that there was this gap between um, sometime in November and December. 18-day gap where uh, the last email before that gap was something to the effect of Harriet Meyer saying, i got to check with the boss, i.e. George Bush, about this. And then all of a sudden there's no more emails uh, for another two weeks. So this may actually just go right into the White House. Well, I think that's, that's a main reason why they want to get White House aides, Carl Rove, Harriet Myers, and others to testify publicly under oath and talk about that period of time. And that's exactly why they don't want their, their aides being uh, shown on TV, being, being pressed on that subject. Maybe, you know, Kyle Sampson, who's gonna, who was Gonzalez's chief of staff, he is scheduled to testify this Thursday. So perhaps those questions about the gap are going to come up to him. But you know, as you said, you know, the real question is about that gap is what was happening on the White House side of things. That's what was happening on the justice side of things. Here is uh, Senator Dick Durbin on Meet the Press Sunday, and he really sums it up what the real issue here is. It's not just a question of the firing of these uh, eight U.S. attorneys. It is the implications as to why they were fired, it's, it's what has happened to the 85 other ones that still have their job. This is uh, number six. What has happened here is raised a question about those others who are serving as U.S. attorneys today who were not dismissed. If they dropped eight people from the team because they didn't play ball, how many others did play ball? We have to ask those questions now. I'm sorry that we do. But a reasonable inquiry would take us to that point of asking Mr. Rove, as well as the Attorney General, well, how many other uh, U.S. attorneys were contacted, either by members of Congress or by higher-ups in the administration, and urged to prosecute matters that had a political side to them before an election? I mean, this is, this is really the issue, isn't it? It's, it's one of many issues. I mean, when, when, you, when you wax some people for uh, not acting partisan enough, you know, you undermine the entire Justice Department's credibility. And, you know, Durbin also mentioned in that Meet the Press interview that, you know, an assistant DA in his home state came up to him in a restaurant and said, you know, I've given my life to the Justice Department, and, you know, now there's a whole cloud over the whole department. You know, you've got to get to the bottom of this. Now, uh, Iglesias, the guy who was fired from New Mexico, this is the guy who received a phone call at home from Senator Pete Domenici and from Heather Wilson in the weeks leading up to the 06 election uh, with the hopes that he would go after Democrats who he had no case against. And uh, here he is, number five, here he is talking about Gonzalez on Meet the Press. Mr. Iglesias, when you hear Mr. McKay talk about the questions he was asked about the governor's race in the state of Washington, your own situation, a senator, a congressman calling you. California, the removal of a U.S. attorney there when an investigation began about a Republican congressman. 
Do you connect those dots and say, my God, we remove, remove for political reasons? It's extremely troubling. United States attorneys have a history under various administrations of being independent. We look at the facts, we apply the law. If we have proof beyond the reasonable doubt, we go forward. Politics has historically not played a part. I recall John Ashcroft sitting me in his office and saying, politics have no part of your job as U.S. attorney. So it is troubling connecting those political dots. And I hope when this scandal is over, uh, the tradition is returned to that as United States attorneys keep politics out and just focus on what the evidence is. Knowing what you know today, do you have confidence in the leadership and integrity of the Attorney General? Right now, I've got serious doubts. I really do. This guy's a rock-rib Republican saying this. Well, this is what is so, you know, befuddling about the whole scandal. I mean, you, I mean, I know these guys, we talked about this before, I mean, these guys have a deep antipathy towards how our government functions, how like, they don't want government that functions on behalf of the people. They want a government that functions on a spoil system that merely executes their agenda regardless of what the law and the facts are. But you got to pick your enemies. You've know, you got to pick your battles. You don't whack U.S. attorney. I mean, you don't, get, you don't come a U.S. attorney unless you're the cream of the crop, you know? <laughs> These are not bumblers. These are guys who are who are very accomplished, very presentable, very sharp. And if those, I mean, you had this is the second week in a row that we've had U.S. attorneys on the Sunday shows, and they were the most yesterday than any week yet. And they're all fantastic on TV. And I'm not saying that should be the only reason why someone gets to keep their job or not. But just from a, from a political standpoint, once the once the media spotlight is big enough that these guys are going to be on TV over and over again. I bet you there are TV bookers out there saying, wow, those guys are good. They'll be good for ratings. Let's book those guys again. You know, if those guys are, are the people who are the face of this scandal, you're, it's, it's going to be very hard to argue that they were, they were legitimately fired for performance problems because they, they come across as top-notch, first-rate prosecutors. And certainly all the statistics that are kept about the, the number of convictions they've had and whatnot suggest exactly the same. I mean, these are some of the top rated U.S. attorneys across the country. When you look at how many convictions they garnered, how many stuck, etc., etc., these are an impressive bunch of people. Last night I thought I found you Saw it in a dream I was tangled in the rushes, babe Now, Bobby and I have always pointed out on this show that anytime there's political filth floating around in the GOP cesspool, you can bet that the smell generally is going to originate with Karl Rove or Dick Cheney. That's not to say that the little shrub himself is not often part of that filth machine, but the truth is that a real complicated dirty tricks operation 
well, it's just a little outside Georgia's grasp, if you know what I mean. If Congress has the good sense to issue subpoenas and maintain congressional hearings even after Alberto Gonzalez resigns, you're going to see Rove's grimy little fingerprints all over the Justice Department firing story. He just can't help himself. Alberto Gonzalez absolutely will resign because the GOP just can't afford all the political filth stories already confronting him today. But the House Judiciary Committee should not let Rove and his creepy political henchmen stroll away from this one without showing Americans just how far gone decency and integrity really is in GOP politics. Anytime a GOP political story has developed legs, Rove has always quietly slithered away like an unrepentant reptile. No questions asked, no answers given. Nine out of ten Americans still are mostly in the dark about Rove's hands-on manipulation of the Valerie Plame outing because no one had the chance to actually watch Rove testify with his right hand in the air under oath. This should be the time that Americans get to see how the most influential man in GOP leadership goes about perpetuating Republican political filth. It's going to make for great TV. More importantly, it's going to give us a clearer picture of how the GOP lockstep mentality perpetuated by political hacks like Rove threatens sustainable democracy in America. The U.S. attorney's story is simple to understand once you understand the mind of Karl Rove. Carol Lamb was fired because she did the unthinkable. She prosecuted a close personal friend of Karl Rove's. Duke Cunningham was a thief by his own admission. He was a two-bit criminal, but he was, above all else, a close personal friend of Karl Rove's. It's the kind of company that Rove chooses to keep. Cunningham was a GOP loyalist lapdog who was more valuable to Rove outside of prison. He was a GOP mover and shaker who's now behind bars for eight years. And Rove doesn't like that because Cunningham could be helping move ahead the GOP agenda. Another part of this very simple story is that U.S. Attorney David Iglesias was unwilling to aggressively target Democratic politicos and big Democratic money donors in New Mexico. So Rove's GOP brand of justice came together and Iglesias became a political target instead. This Republican cesspool story is no different from a dozen others that Americans have watched develop during these GOP dark years. Just when we think the Tom DeLay story is ugly, Jack Abramoff surfaces. Or, just when we think that the lies about the lead-up to the war in Iraq is a putrid picture, we learn that the Republican-run FBI is engaged in illegally spying on political opponents of the GOP. After 12 years of Republicans in Washington, Americans have adjusted to a completely new reality of political morality. But believe it or not, even that reality is going to become creepier the day that Karl Rove slithers into a congressional hearing to give us a little more insight under oath about what the grand old party has really become.
There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. Alberto Gonzalez in the hot seat, and he decides to do a, a radio interview. God bless him. I wish he'd come on the show here. It would have been fun for everybody. Uh, maybe next time. But as it stands, he went on uh, a popular station in Seattle, from what I understand, 710 Cairo. Of course, they're nothing like the great uh, progressive talk station we have in Seattle. But anyway, so uh, they he decides to go on a morning program with Tony Miner and Jane Shannons. They actually ask him fair questions. Let's see if you can pick out whether he actually answers the questions. And just look for, they're asking him, why did you fire these guys? In all these answers, the one thing to listen for is see if he says why they fired these prosecutors. Here's the Seattle, as you know, is home of former U.S. Attorney John McKay. Mr. Gonzalez, why was he fired? Listen, uh, we made a decision of the department as to the appropriate way forward. And uh, uh, there was nothing improper about the decision here. Uh, the President of the United States has the authority to hire and remove political appointees for any reason. Uh, obviously, uh, the question here is whether or not were these political appointees removed for improper reasons. Uh, people may have a disagreement as to those reasons, but so long as they're not improper, the president has the authority and the discretion based upon the recommendation of a cabinet official to make changes with respect to personnel. There is no evidence whatsoever, and it's reckless and irresponsible to allege that the that these decisions were based in any way on improper motives. <laughs> reckless and improper to suggest that they were for improper reasons. Oh, no, God, yes, you Alberto Gonzalez, no evidence whatsoever to suggest that. Very reckless of people to suggest that. Except for all the memos internally where you guys are like, you rated them based on whether they were, quote, loyal Bushies. Okay? You asked them what, you know, if they've angered local Republicans. You had senators and, and congresswomen calling them and threatening them. Okay? Except for all that stuff, it would be reckless to suggest that these firings were improper. But mo the most importantly is, Mr. Gonzalez, do you have an answer? So why did you fire them? Why did you fire them? He says, well, they, you know, for we have the authority to fire them. But that wasn't the question. The question was, why did you fire them? So they make another run at it. Let's see if he answers it this time. Was it a matter of McKay's performance? Again, the question is whether or not it was, it was improper. It was not improper. No, that wasn't the question. Uh, we'll be communicating with the Congress about specifics going forward. We've already provided a lot of documentation. I've offered to make DOJ officials available for for uh, uh, interviews, 
and for testimony. And so at the end of the day, the story is going to be out there about what happened here. We've got nothing to hide. Uh, I, have, I have no reason to believe anything improper here. If I felt that anyone at the department was involved in making this decision to retaliate or to interfere with an ongoing investigation, I would fire that person immediately. There's no room for that in the department. I wouldn't stand for it. <laughs> well, how do you fire yourself? Why, why don't you, if he thought there was any way of that any reason that they were interfering with investigations, well, how about a senator calling about that investigation? How about a congresswoman who it directly affects right before the election calling about that investigation? And then once they don't get the answer that they want, you fire them right after the election. I mean, how much clearer does it have to be? Come on, dude, man, your lying is out of control. It's, I mean, they have no compunctions. But put all that aside. Why did you fire them? No, no, no. The question here is whether it's important. No, no, no. That wasn't the question. The question is, okay, you say you have a proper reason. So what is that proper reason? Let's give this a third go around. Let's see if he answers it this time. Mr. Attorney General, as a way to diffuse this controversy now, uh, why not just come out and tell the American people exactly why these prosecutors were fired? What did they do? Well, of course, that's something that we're, we're engaged in a dialogue now with the Congress. Some of that information is already out there. Some of that information is available in the documents. But I, but I want to I remind your listeners about one thing, that whatever those reasons are, and people, you know, people have subjective views as to whether or not, well, should that person go, should that person not go. Uh, we're gonna, there may be disagreements about that, but the president has the authority and the discretion to make that decision. And whether or not you agree with it or not, he has that authority, and it's okay for him to do so based upon my recommendation. What we should all be concerned about is whether or not were the firings based upon, the removals based upon improper motives. And uh, I'm saying to the American people and to your listeners that the answer to that is no, and it's irresponsible and reckless to continue to insist that this great Department of Justice was involved in something improper. I love that. They go to the uh, Justice Department, and before they arrive, it is a great Justice Department. Then they soil it, and then afterwards they go, well, it was a great Justice Department, so it must, there must not be anything wrong with it. Says, I'm in this great Justice Department, and what I did must not have been wrong. Hey, but, dude, answer the question. Now they've asked you three different times. You say it's reckless and irresponsible to suggest that the firings were improper. Well, then why don't you tell us what the proper reason was? Okay, then tell me the, the very responsible way to handle it. What was the reason? Three times asked, three times not answered. Let's give it a shot one more time. Here's the fourth time to ask. Well, you can certainly understand some confusion, sir, when in August of last year, one of your deputies recommended McKay for a federal judgeship, and just a month later, McKay's name was put basically on a list of prosecutors to be pushed out. This is according to emails um, obtained from your department. What changed in that short period of time? Listen, the fact that someone may have had a, a, an idea or a discussion, that doesn't represent the views of the department. So it doesn't re represent my view. These U.S. attorney positions are extremely important to me. Uh, they are on the front lines protecting our kids. They are out there today talking about this ad campaign that I want to talk with your listeners about with respect to what we can do to further protect our kids from, from, from predators. And, and, uh, and so this is an issue that's very important for me, and we will continue to focus on the work for the American people, and that's what I'm focused on as Attorney General. <laughs> when everything else fails, hide behind the kids. If there are no soldiers or troops to hide behind, Hide behind these. Hey, listen, these uh, prosecutors were trying to protect the kids. That's where we fired.
<laughs> okay, look, I'm not very good at sign language, and some of you might take offense to this, but I'm because he won't. Maybe I gotta try it. Why did you fire them? Okay, why did you fire them? They asked you four times and you won't say. Now, why do you think people are curious? And why do you think he won't say it? If you're a Republican or a conservative or an independent, I always ask this. You tell me, why do you think he won't answer the question? If he has a proper reason, if he has a responsible reason, why won't he answer it? Because he doesn't have a reason. The real reason is because they fired him for politics to stop them from investigating Republicans and to get people who in there like Carl Rose protege who would investigate Democrats. For those of you who don't know this about me, which might be every single one of you, my favorite type of political conversation or discussion or diatribe of any kind is one that dissects kind of the core fundamental differences between people and their thought processes and their political affiliations and what causes that and so and which is one of the main reasons why I miss Janine Garofalo on you know from the old majority report because she was great at that that sort of stuff basically uh, um, pop psychology and, and trying to pick apart the uh, motivations of crazy conservatives but so today with you know as we learn about kind of the inner political workings of our current attorney general I kind of want to remind you, this is the same guy, you know, before, policy-wise, you know, he was the, uh, the you know, the, the guy who wrote the torture memos, the um, the Geneva Conventions are quaint uh, when it comes to this new war. Like, you know, that's his kind of thought process when it comes to how to treat other people and, you know, what's the right thing to do. And... So, anyways, a couple days ago, I stumbled across this blog post that went into this kind of pop psychology um, idea, and um, so instead of me, you know, trying to come up with something on my own or be clever or original in any way, I figured I'd just steal the whole thing and read it to you guys. So even though it's not the perfect moment on the show to go into this sort of thing. It doesn't quite fit with the theme. But I, I liked it, so I figured I, I'd read it to you and, and see, how, see how it goes. So here we go. This, was, uh, this is written by Philip Bump. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Uh, written on the Huffington Post titled, The Great Dichotomy Revealed. At the pinnacle of my liberal bleeding heart community consciousness, I helped to start a neighborhood association in a fairly affluent area of San Jose, California. Empower the citizenry, dumpster days, that sort of thing. After the first year of its existence, during which we had some fair semblance of success at involving our neighbors in improving our collective lot, more people wanted to get involved with running the association. 
including a man we will call Kevin, because that's his name. Kevin provided my first upfront, in-the-flesh interaction with that sort of conservative for whom the very concept of taxation is anathema. We spent hours collectively debating whether or not we should apply for funding from the city to provide even basic things like block parties, because Kevin hoped that, were we not to do so, his taxes might go down, because the city didn't give us two grand. Upon consideration of Kevin, Kevin's viewpoint, and after calming down, the following occurred to me. Liberals believe in government for the people. Conservatives believe in government for the person, namely themselves. I was reminded of this thought recently when Representative Rohrbacher's now famous remark that should you oppose extraordinary rendition, he, quote, hopes it is your family, unquote, that suffers the consequences of a terrorist attack. This is precisely the conservative mentality. So that my family and I should be safe, it is acceptable for you and yours to suffer. Think about the idea of capital punishment. For me, the idea that any innocent person might be put to death by the state is reprehensible, and as such, I oppose the death penalty. For a conservative, however, it is worth the sacrifice of innocent life so that there might be some illusory deterrent effect, or so that others are off the streets. They are happy to have innocent people die in the hopes that their family might be spared. From where do these differing viewpoints come? Both are born of the same instinct, protection. For a liberal, though, that protection extends to the broader population, typically of those of lesser means or of uh, or the oppressed. For the conservative, it extends as far as the person's address book. The instinct is clearly born of the person's situation in life. The odds that a wealthy, upper-middle-class uh, upper white conservative is going to be spirited off to Germany and tortured or executed for a crime he didn't commit is extremely unlikely. It is far more likely that the victim of such injustice will come from the same populations for we, as liberals, fight. People of color, the underprivileged. Therefore, having untold members of those groups abused to find one who might prevent a terrorist attack is an acceptable outcome for a conservative. It's a long path from opposing the funding of neighborhood groups in San Jose to the abuse of Egyptian nationals in Guantanamo Bay, but recognizing the shared philosophy and solipsism in both circumstances may be a step toward understanding how to move past such petty and disappointing worldviews. So what do you guys think? Um, I mean, is there a fundamental uh, chemical imbalance between uh, two different people with opposing political views? Uh, is it nature or nurture? Where does it all come from? Where, where do these lines of thinking come from? I, I really don't know, and I'm truly curious to, to hear what you guys have to say. So I, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to this blog post so you can comment directly on the posting itself or you can uh, send emails to me or um, or uh, there will be a section in the what's it called? Forums in, in the community forum at Best of the Left Podcast 
com, and so you can comment there. Uh, any any way you want to get your uh, ideas out there, uh, certainly do so. I'll be looking forward to that. Personal note, I have to tell you about this guy, Philip Bump, because I'm pretty sure he has a crush on me. So, Philip Bump is the Philip of the Philip and Michael team who make up the podcast Wasting Time at Work, which you may have heard me recommend uh, in, in the past, probably quite a while ago by now. And our two podcasts have actually run very parallel existences since their inception. I, I believe they were even inspired from the same place. Now, long ago, I credited... Paul from the PK&J show with giving me the flash of inspiration which became the idea which eventually became the Best of the Left podcast. And Paul from the PK&J show also used to work with Philip Bump and, and gave Philip his first taste of podcasting by having him as a guest interviewee on the PK&J show. Now, and this happened just about the same time. Now, the the Best of the Left podcast was launched January 29th, 2006. Just about a month later, Wasting Time at Work was launched February 27th, 2006. Now, just a coincidence? Who knows? But it gets much deeper. Now, since then... Uh, we've kind of been dancing around each other a bit. Uh, we've both been mentioned on each other's shows, either explicitly or in passing. Um, although there's been no explicit request by either of us for this, uh, this sort of thing, we're both uh, prominently listed on each other's MySpace pages for each, each of our respective shows. And... Although I didn't think of anything of it at the time, we used to actually live in very close proximity to each other. Back when I lived in Sacramento, he lived in San Jose, just a couple hour drive. And that by itself wouldn't necessarily mean anything. However, when I moved away to Washington, D.C., Philip suddenly announces on his podcast that he's gotten engaged and is moving to New York City. Now, obviously, there's some sort of uh, proximity fetish he's got here where he couldn't stand to be away. You know, we, we'd been so close for so long, and then all of a sudden I leave, and he has to pick up and drive 3,000 miles across the country just just to be near me again. And I think it's obvious that the whole uh, engagement ruse is some sort of a um, attempt to make me jealous or something like that. Now, I really, I just have to be honest. Like, if uh, if I'm not way off base here, and I don't think I am, look, I'm open to opportunities. But Philip, um, you know, I'm, I'm not into these kind of games. So, if, if you're looking to take our relationship to the next level from, um, you know, zero correspondence and uh, um, having never spoken to each other before uh, to whatever level comes right after that, 
um, then let's do it. Just give me a sign. I mean, the Chinatown bus, that'll get me to New York. It's like 30 bucks or whatever. No big deal. And, you know, let's do this thing. But otherwise, like, just don't be, don't be so obvious. Like, I'm not into these kind of games. So that's what I have to say about that. And now finally, on a final personal note, um, I wasn't going to mention this before, uh, except I got an email today, and so I thought I would. Uh, today, um, April 27th, as I'm recording this, is actually my birthday. I, I just turned 24, and I got a, an email today from a friend who is a, a listener of the show and has been a friend of my sister for the last, essentially, 24 years. Like, she was there when I was born, basically. And so she sent me a, a happy birthday note uh, via email today, and attached to that was uh, a picture of me that I've never seen before um, as a, a, about, I'm going to guess, a five-year-old. And, um, and so I thought, how appropriate... Uh, you know, I don't make a big deal about my birthday ever, and um, and it was going to let it pass, but since I got this picture in the email, I thought how appropriate, I'll mention it, and for fun, essentially, l listen closely for my air quotes around the word fun, um, I thought I would include that in the show, just uh so for anyone uh, listening on uh, an iPod or an iTunes to the enhanced version of the podcast, you can see right now the goofy little picture of me that'll make all the girls say aw and all the guys um, wish they had skipped on ahead to the next uh, podcast they were going to listen to today. So there's that for you. Huge thanks today to the guest producer of the show, Awesome who did another fantastic job, as he always does, and uh, as it relatively regularly does, this show has been coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C. My name's Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor